So I'm sitting there and I'm singing this song about I depend on you, I depend on you, abiding with Jesus. And one of my boys wants to come sit on my lap in the middle of singing the song. And it's just like, I don't know. I felt like, I don't know for you, Jan, I felt like as I was even reflecting on some of the verses, I depend on you, I depend on you. I don't. I try to do it myself. Like I'm just like I'm lying as I'm singing. I kind of do. But I kind of, Darren depends on himself. Darren depends on himself. Like, <laughs> Good self-awareness. Like, <laughs> and then I'm singing this song about how God wants to abide with us and he wants us to abide with him. And like, there's just a kid who's like, can I just sit on your lap for the next 30 seconds before you go up and do the talking part? I'm like, okay, you can sit on my lap. I don't know, like we, I think we bring ideas into our relationship with God that might not match the story. Like we bring ideas about what abiding looks like or what being with God looks like or what worshiping God looks like. But then you imagine Jesus and his friends sitting around and having supper right before he's about to leave. And he's like, guys, I'm leaving and this is gonna be hard because I'm not gonna be here anymore. But don't forget, without me, this doesn't work. So just like, come abide with me. And John and Peter are sitting probably on opposite sides of Jesus, and they're, they're probably leaning against him. They're sitting on the floor having supper. And he's like, just continue to do this when I'm gone. Just continue to sit and lean against me. Because I know it's going to be hard. I'm gone, but I'm right here. I don't think we do that enough. I don't do that enough. Just, just sit with God and just lean against him and just be quiet with him and listen to him. And, but this part of me that's like, I can do this on my own. I don't know. Yeah. The silence with God is, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to sit in. I don't do it enough, definitely. Sometimes it's scary because you're scared of what God's actually going to do. Sometimes you have to kind of avoid it. (laughs) What was the most meaningful song for you so far that we've sung this morning? Um, What songs have we sung? You sang them. The middle one? <laughs> I don't remember. We're working with short-term mm-hmm. memory. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The middle one. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay to tell people, too, like, yeah, you're coming to listen to a lot of different things in the service, and part of it is going to be you and me talking for a few minutes, and part of it is me talking for a lot of minutes, but like, if what you get out of the service is something deep and meaningful from a song in the middle of the worship set, then just sit and abide with that thought for the rest of the service, you know? There's something very unique. I mean, this is why I love music. This is kind of off topic, but this is why I love like worship music is because there's something very unique about hearing a song so specifically that is not coincidence, because obviously God needs to tell you something. And if you have ears to listen to it, you can learn a lot with self-reflection paired with a song. And yeah, it's quite something. So if anyone here doesn't know who you are, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself, 
who you are, where you come from, and if they bumped into you on a random day of the week, what would they see you doing? My name is Jana. Um, I grew up here in this church, and um, yep, that's pretty simple. And if you bump into me during the week, I work at the center here in town. I am part of the programming staff there, so I get to hang out with teenagers. And um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a random job, it's kind of fun. (laughs) Why hang out with teenagers? Why does it make a difference in their life hanging out with them? Hmm. Because you never know if they've ever had somebody that's actually listened to them and cared about them and loved them. And if they can find one person to do that, you never know what kind of a difference that can make in their life. It can have a really deep impact. So it's a daily lesson in intentionality, I think. It's easy to forget because when you see them every day all the time, you just hang out with them. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you get to just really sit down and really care about them. And it's amazing. The I think it's important to not judge a book by its cover because it's amazing the conversations you can have with the kids that you never expected them to have. Kind of even capacity for such deep conversations. It's very cool. Do you find that the teenagers are fairly closed off to sharing, or do you find that they're more open than you'd expect? It depends. It depends on how much they want to shock you sometimes. Then they'll be open, but they won't be vulnerable. Um, Some of them are only vulnerable. Um, And some of them, you say, hi, how are you? And they go, hmm. So, Hmm. it's a range. (laughs) Some of them you're lucky if you get a nod one day, and then the next day, you'll have, like, the best conversation you've ever had. Hmm. So, you never know. So, if one of them came up to you and said, Jana, you follow Jesus, don't you? And you said, yeah, I do. Why do you believe in Jesus? What did you say? They don't ask it like that. But <laughs> isn't that how all teenagers ask questions like that? <laughs> I think um, if to almost to rephrase the question in that perspective, um, the comment that begins that has for myself has begun that conversation is I have so much emptiness in my life. I have nothing to live for, and I want to die, because what's the point of living? Mm -hmm. But I don't want to die, because I don't know what's after. And um, that is what opens up the conversation, to say, you know what, I don't have to feel that way, because I can trust in Jesus. Because Jesus is my answer to all of these questions. Because 
Um, yeah, because Jesus has been there for me, very obviously, um, in many different situations in my life that I cannot attribute to coincidence. Um, and yeah, he is the one that gives me that hope. And yeah, it's, I think that's kind of more of the way that is conversationally approachable in, in the real world sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if they hear that answer and they think that's compelling, I'm empty and I want what you have, I want to follow Jesus too. And they look at you as someone who's never been to church before, maybe ever in their life, mm -hmm. and go, I have stereotypes about what being a Jesus follower looks like. I've seen movies or TV shows. I have a, a skewed view. If I become one who follows Jesus, what my life is going to look like from now on. And they looked at you and said, what does it look like for you to follow Jesus? What would you say? <clears throat> well, first of all, when they come with that, all Christians are just awful people because they treat people terribly. Um, I make a point to point out that all of our staff members are Christians and they love us and we love them. And um, the way that we live our life daily um, is important because I, I, I know I can have the confidence to say, I am a Christian, I love you, and I care for you. And so does Kenton, and so does Lana. And so I think that's an important piece. Um, but to see what that looks like daily, you know, I wouldn't say this to them, but this is what it is for me. I don't know what I would say to them because that's never come up. The first part has, but, um, but it's definitely dying to yourself every day. I am not, I am not the center of the universe. And like my dad said so much growing up, God is God and I am not. And so I think really just like living that um, and being very self-aware while you're living that so that, um, yeah, so that you don't lose sight of kind of really what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which is to be, acknowledge that you're human and, um, and have that be okay because God is bigger than that. And you're safe in that. But don't I have to read the Bible for so many minutes a day or I'm going to hell? No, but it's probably good if you do. <laughs> 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 because if you're spending time in Scripture daily, I will say this, I have only started doing this in the last year. It's been about a year. I think I've only missed like six days, so... I'm doing pretty good. Um, but it's amazing. The, honestly, like the encouragement that I get from reading my Bible, and I mean, it's not every day, but if I'm going through something and working through something, 
say I'm working through something with a friend or uh, something happens in someone else life, else's life and I'm having a conversation with them or, I don't know, any number of scenarios that happen in life. Um, when I sit down at the end of the day or the beginning of the day and the scripture or devotion book that I am reading sometimes word for word says, repeats back to me what's been said in conversations. Um, and then scripture affirms it. And that in itself is so much encouragement and comfort to know that God is with me, I am not alone, and I can trust him because he knows what's best. And I definitely do not. And so, and it provides guidance. And so I think there is so much value in reading your Bible every day. Definitely. Yeah. What would you say to someone who asked you whether you can be a Christian at home in isolation and you were trying to have a conversation with them about why you need other people, other followers of Jesus? What would you tell them why they need other followers of Jesus in their life? I would say the only reason I do read my Bible every single day, the only reason I am free from a lot of the sin that kind of just held me just like smothered on the ground um, for so long is because of having other members of the church family holding me accountable. Um, every single day, really. And um, sometimes that job for that person is a bigger job and it's a heavier job. And sometimes it's literally just, uh, did you read your Bible? Yep, cool. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I think that the change, I would not be who I am today without the many members of the church family, very specifically, being intentional in friendship. Yeah. And there is something that also, being, holding other people accountable, it, it's almost like it holds you to a higher standard because if you fail and they fail, who has any leg to stand on? So you have to strive to be like Christ every day. And yeah, we do fail, and that's okay. But, um, yeah. So if you look back over your testimony, over your life of being a Christian, um, would there be any moments that you could share specifically where someone was intentional and it made a significant impact or difference in your life? I would say that, honestly, not to be a broken record, but honestly, I have a friend that has walked with me through this past year, and truly the accountability that simply 
that is reading your scriptures every day. Um, that has honestly changed my life a lot in who I am as a person and how I live out my faith in my own personal life because it's really easy to live out your faith in public. That looks one way, that looks good, but it's very different if you aren't living that in your personal life as well. It makes a deep impact. Um, I think a lot of us are really good at hiding that, but um, yeah, I would say that would be the most profound difference, and that leads to other things, you know, when you're reading your Bible every day and trust somebody, um, you become more self-aware of the sin in your life and the things that need to change, and so I think that that those are the things that follow that kind of daily commitment. So last thought, what if there's someone here who hears that? Someone here is nervous because you just said we become self-aware and when we bring other people into our mess, they know what's going on and they can hold us accountable. So if there's someone in the church family who is a Sunday morning worshiper, but they've never opened up and they're afraid or it's pride and it's ego or whatever it is that's really kept them closed off from other people and they've never opened themselves up to invite people in, what would you say to that person right now to encourage them to consider it? I was you. Um, and I was really good at being a good Christian. And, man, it is terrifying um, to sit there and be convicted and then to not do anything about it over and over and over. Um, but I have so much joy in my life now compared to those moments so many years ago when I would literally sit in church like this because I felt like I didn't belong and I needed to like run out the door because I was so deep under sin. And yeah, those conversations are scary, but if you can find somebody that you can trust, that you can begin to slowly open up that conversation. Um, sometimes it's really hard to open up that conversation. Sometimes that conversation for the first time doesn't even happen vocally. Sometimes, like, if I'm gonna be honest, when I first opened up about a few things that I was dealing with, I literally sat there with a friend and I typed on my phone, a note, this is this. Handed it to her, she read it, and she deleted it. Because it's terrifying. And sometimes it's so scary to even say the words out loud. And it took me years to say the words out loud. Um, and then you do. 
and then people still love you. And then you can breathe again. And um, yeah. Now I am somebody that I hope people aren't scared of me because I really, really, really love to sit in those uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> and I love to ask those hard questions and I can't get enough of it now. But I've tasted this goodness. Like, how can you not know? But I know how you cannot know because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's terrifying. But yeah. Sometimes the biggest step on the inside looks this big on the outside, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. Amen. Let's go home. That was pretty much it. That was amazing. As I was thinking about that, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus this week? As I'm playing with this idea, I'm trying to imagine our family and I'm trying to imagine people who are new to faith moving through the process of being a Jesus follower. Because if you're introduced to being a Jesus follower, and at first, it's a relationship purely with God. You love him and he loves you, and you come to a worship service and you experience this love and this connection and this worship and this respect with God. It can stay there. It can stop there. You can meet people who've been a Christian their whole life. And they're exactly what Jana was just talking about. They're too afraid to open up. They're too afraid to invite people into their mess that's where their Christian faith stops. And we read in the Bible that we're supposed to help one another reach maturity, and yet we're stuck. We're stuck. But there's better life for you and me outside of this moment if we are able to bring people into our mess and into our life. And if you're uncomfortable with that thought, Boy, the next half an hour is going to get really uncomfortable, but that's okay. That's okay. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus as a family member in the body? As we think about that this morning, I want to ask you a question and have you think about this question. Let's throw it up on the screen. The question is this. Think back to a moment when you, you yourself, needed someone the most. And think of who was there for you. As I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about moments in my life 
And I was trying to imagine what moments you might come up with for this question. Maybe when you think about this question, struggles in your personal life, maybe struggles in your marriage, or in your family rise to the surface, maybe it's struggles at work, maybe it's the loss of a job or the loss of a reputation rise to the surface. For some, I've seen how it's actually through moments where your health has failed, where something traumatic has happened. You imagine a mother who goes through a miscarriage. I've seen this. That moment when you needed someone the most and you didn't even know how to express it, and yet someone knew how to sit with you and comfort you, and that person was there for you in that moment when you needed them the most. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be the death of a spouse. And for some people, it's that moment of sitting in the hospital and you just don't know if you're ever going to make it home again. This week, God taught me a hard lesson. And I have to choose whether I'm going to be vulnerable and talk about it or not. And I really kicked around how much I wanted to talk about it. I was supposed to be writing this sermon this week all about how to support one another and I was grumpy for a good chunk of the week because I was busy. Do you know what I was busy doing? Spending time with people. And it made me grumpy because I wanted to write a sermon about spending time with people. <laughs> That's not funny. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the hospital with different people and you have this moment. I don't know, Bob must have this all the time doing his chaplaincy work. For those of you who haven't gone through this, maybe I'm just new to this. It's quite a feeling. It's hard to describe. You're, you're in the hospital with somebody, and I got to visit Dave Penner, and I got to visit uh, Harold Thiessen, I got to visit other people. And as you sit there and visit with them, and you hold their hand, and you pray with them, there's this, this feeling that you get, this connection, and this look that they give you. And I'm telling you, it's different than you might think, and it's thankfulness. It's not thankfulness for the prayer that I prayed for them. It's not thankfulness for the verses that I picked to read for them. It's not thankfulness because I did anything practical to help them. Like, I feel so useless. I walk into the room, and they hardly know me. I hardly know them. I'm this kid. What am I going to do in this moment? And I sit, and I hold their hand, and we pray, and the look that they give me I'm telling you, I'm trying to sum it up in this. They just needed somebody. And they're just thankful you were there. And I feel so humbled because I'm stressed on the drive to the hospital that I'm going to, be, I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm going to say something dumb or I'm not going to read enough verses or I'm going to pick a, a weird passage and it's not going to mean anything to them. And you're thinking about this, what am I going to say and what if we run out of topics to talk about because I don't want to look like an idiot and you're holding their hand, and you realize, I was the idiot the whole time for not recognizing the fact they wanted someone to hold their hand. That's what they wanted. Just sit and hold their hand. I didn't have to say a thing. But in the moment when they needed someone the most, someone was there for them. That, my friends, is the church family. That, my friends, is the pattern that we see in Scripture. 
It's the pattern because Jesus never intended us to live this Christian life to be followers of him alone. How do I know this? I know this because when you start to read through the letters and as you especially end up at the moment when Jesus is saying goodbye to his disciples, he really opens up in a vulnerable way with them. And he knows the trouble that they're going to face. He knows the persecution that they're going to face, how hard it's going to be, how their lives are going to be taken from them. He knows this. And he's praying with them at that last supper. And his prayer for them is that they would love one another. It's his new command for them. He prays for unity among them. As Judas runs off, he's praying for unity among them. So I get the impression as I read it that Jesus intended Peter and he intended Paul. He intended Barnabas and Silas. He was thinking about Stephen, people like Timothy. That they weren't meant to do this on their own and neither are you. Because the Christian life is full of pain. And that doesn't put butts in seats to tell people that. That's not what we put on the side of the building. Christian life is full of pain. and It's not. We try to lure people in like, Jesus is amazing. Come. Come sing the songs. You'll love it. You'll love it. Your life will never be the same. And that's part of the story. That's half the testimony. But often we don't tell the other half the testimony. It's death to yourself. And that, my friends, oh, why do we do this? Why do we do this on our own? I asked Janet the question, what is it? Is it pride? Is it ego? Is it fear, vulnerability? It's all those different things. For me, well, you asked Chantel, I started being vulnerable like two years ago. I'd never done it once in my life. Like, I, it just, it's not in me. It's not. If you ask me how I'm doing, I will give you a three-word answer unless you pull it out of me because that's uncomfortable to be that kind of vulnerable with somebody. But like we're just fooling ourselves if we think we can do this on our own. We talked about this a little bit at the men's breakfast yesterday. Just like we need to be there for one another or what are we doing? What are we doing? When Paul, the missionary, writes his letter to the Corinthian church, the Corinthian church is, oh, they're just ruthless with each other. And he's writing to them about being a body. And they're a family that are just tearing each other apart. They're suing each other and there's sexual immorality that's dividing their family. They are getting drunk at communion. They're ripping each other apart. They're praising certain pastors over top of one another. And you get into chapter 12 and it says in 1 Corinthians that they were actually using their spiritual gifts to alienate one another. They were actually making people feel terrible about themselves because they didn't have a certain spiritual gift and they were puffing themselves up, others, because they had a different spiritual gift. This is how he writes as a pastor to the church. I'm going to read a few different verses from chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to put one verse up on the screen, verse 14, but we're going to read from 12 to 20. And I'm going to read it fairly quickly and then we're going to move to Acts. This is what Paul wrote to that church. He said, For just as the body is one and has many members, that's body parts, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're Greek, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, that's one body part, but of many parts. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Do you see that there? As he chose. Verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So what conclusion should we come to if we read that scripture? Do you know what we should? That every body part has a role. You and I, and we need to discover what it is. Because if some of us are eyes and some of us are ears and some of us are the mouth and some of the hands and feet and you decide to never open up and become a part of the church family, we are limited by the fact that one of our body parts has pulled away from the body. And we need to have this healthy respect and love and appreciation for one another because all of us are skilled differently, we're spiritually gifted differently, And we need to welcome people into our lives for accountability and for encouragement. Because every body part has a role to play. Even myself this past week. I sit in the hospital and maybe I'm a hand. Or I sit and listen to someone and maybe I'm an ear. Or maybe on Sunday when I'm teaching, I'm the mouth. Like, you can actually play different roles in the family. Maybe depending on the moment that the Holy Spirit calls you to be faithful but you would never read this story and come to the conclusion that someone isn't useful or that you don't need other people. Of course you would need other people. We were never meant to do this on our own. Each of us have a role to play. Let's go to an example from the early church. So let's go to Acts. If you have your Bible, we're gonna read two different stories. One of them we're gonna summarize, the other one we're gonna read in full, and this is Acts chapter four. Last week, we read through part of Acts chapter 2. And it says that they devoted themselves to teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and they were meeting in the temple and in each other's homes, and they're praising God and sharing everything they had. Well, guess what, friends? It got messy. It got ugly. You see, in the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John are out teaching and they're out talking And they're talking all about Jesus. And the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, catch word of this. And they go and they arrest them. And they bring them in and they threaten to hurt them and beat them. They threaten them. You will never talk about him again. Never. All of a sudden, their little happy family could be shattered. Their lives could actually be on the line. 
for being a follower of Jesus. So much for these happy church services. Someone shows up at my house with a meal. We're praying together. All these beautiful things from chapter 2 of Acts. And now you have someone saying, enough or else. What are we going to do? Do you know what the story isn't about to tell us? Do you know what it's not going to say? Peter and John went off into isolation and sat all by themselves. And they found incredible strength by sitting alone with no one around them. No, it doesn't tell us that at all. What does the story tell us in Acts chapter 4? Yes, you can sit by yourself and pray. Come on, be realistic. But look at this story. This is verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends. Acts chapter 4, 23. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and they prayed. They just got threatened. And Peter and John run back to their church family and they pray together. And the verses that follow are this beautiful and long prayer. And they're praying together as a family. And we're going to pick it up Verse 29, see, it's behind me. Verse 29, let's read along. And now, Lord, this is the end of their prayer, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was, huh? Shaken. They prayed as a church family, and the building moved. You guys are not near as excited as I thought you'd be for that moment. That's huge. Do you imagine if we were like in the middle of praying, and just, boom, the building moved. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. And God supernaturally showed up and they were filled with boldness. Friends, a spiritual support system for one another. Why I think followers of Jesus were destined to be with other followers of Jesus. Why Jesus himself is praying for his disciples that they wouldn't quit on one another. Is because you and I become a spiritual support system for each other. And when we pull back from the family, we lose that. So why are there people in church? Why are there people who come to these services who refuse to trust and lean on other people? They come in and they worship and they sneak out. But they never share what's going on. When we were destined and made for relying on one another... Let's get even more practical. Let's read the next story. This is at verse 32. So they just finished praying for boldness, and God shook the building. Acts chapter 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This practical support. How many times have you in your life needed help practically and the church showed up to help? You can think through examples. Maybe you've experienced. Maybe you were the recipient of a phone call or a visit or a meal. Maybe you received a bridal shower or a baby shower. Maybe you were prayed for, interceded by somebody. How were you practically supported? Maybe there's a mom who needs help and another mom decides to watch and babysit her kids. Maybe someone knows you're struggling and steps in to help. Maybe you don't have the money to cover something or pay for something. And someone in the church says, I got you. And a check shows up. You ever received one of those before? I got you. Like it doesn't just have to be prayer meetings for boldness. You and I right now can be observant to people in the church family who need practical support and we can show up. People who are aging People who are raising kids. Come on. Talk about baby dedications. What do we always do during a baby dedication? You remember. I've done it three times for my kids. We stand up here as families and smile at you, and it's awkward. We hold our kid, and the pastor touches the kid, and the kid cries. Pastor, please don't touch the baby. The baby cries. And we ask the church family, do you promise to support this family? Do you promise? And the whole church says, amen. You promise to help. Why? Because we believe that there is strength in raising our kids together with a family. We believe there's practical help that can come from a church body, the different gifts, spiritually and practically, to help raise our children. The church family doesn't say, good luck with that. They say, we'll be there for you. will be there for you. We, no, Darren, let's get specific here. Darren, myself, is often the greatest hindrance to me being fully loved by someone. And that's because I'm hesitant to be fully known by someone. In Timothy Keller's The Meaning of Marriage, he writes about this. That to be fully loved by someone, we need to be fully known. And that's terrifying. And it's terrifying because to be fully known means that you are completely honest. So in a church family, for a disciple to thrive... I see a pattern in scripture where people relied on one another. If someone needed help and their brother sold a field and brought the money and said, I can help, and someone goes, this is embarrassing. I have financial issues and I've just decided that I'm going to keep it to myself. And the whole church was of one heart and was of one mind, right? No. Come on. Somehow, 
they cut through that. I don't know, they were just desperate? They cut through it. There was this unity amongst them that it wasn't shameful or embarrassing to ask for help. There was something. And they practically had each other's backs. They were there for one another. So I look around my family, and I see all of us, and I see certain people who are just so open and vulnerable. And there's people showing up in their life and praying for them and practically helping them. And I say, amen, amen. The church is being the church family for them. And then I see some other people and they quietly sneak into the worship service. And they quietly sneak out at the end. And I think to myself, I have no idea how they're doing. I don't know how to support them. I don't know how to love them. I don't know how to pray for them. I have no idea, and I wish I did. Friends, the challenge for me, the challenge for us, is that if we want to push through just being worshipers of Jesus and become part of the family, we need to open ourselves up to the family's love. That knowing leads to that loving. But if you're expecting the church family to love and support you, but you've never opened yourself up to them, I think you're hoping for an outcome that's not going to happen. And I hope that you hear the words that Jana shares and you hear these words, and maybe for the first time, you just realize, I have to tell somebody, I'm done doing this on my own. I need this kind of help. I do. But I've been too embarrassed to say, hey, I need help. My fear as a dad and as a pastor is awful similar, and it's watching us as a family not move through to maturity. Up on the screen, you're going to see the discipleship process. This is just, I don't know, a summary of what it could look like. There's probably different ways of summarizing it that would be more effective than this. This is just one way I was thinking about it. How you kind of move from being a worshiper into a family member, into a student, and into an imitator. So why is it that so many of us experience those two and then freeze? Right? And I can think of people specifically who I've seen over the years in the church family love God and then maybe they start coming to, I don't know, congregational care events or something outside of congregational care. And they finally start to be integrated into the family and they just settle in it. Oh, there we go. I finally have someone to look after me and I love God. And that's where their faith stops. When the second column, amen, the second column, that's where you break through. But that's the costly column. Because that requires you and me to pour out. Because if we are going to not just know God and be loved by God, but actually become like him and do what he did, we have to start pursuing. That's just the word I thought described it well. Pursuing him. And people go, I don't know about all that. To really pursue life with God I'm going to have to pursue the scriptures and pursue prayer and pursue having an accountability partner and pursue all these different things. And I don't know. It sure is awful fun to come to church 
And it's sure awful fun to have meals come to my house, but I don't know about all this pursuit stuff. And then eventually it leads to this outward focus where you now pour into other people. And you now become the one who builds up. You reach out to those who don't know Jesus, and you're the equipper to people in the church who are younger in the faith who need to grow closer to Jesus. You know how heartbreaking it is when me and the ministry team and the elders talk about who's going to be on our team in five years? You know how long, how many minutes and hours we've spent at meetings talking about how these teams might not have anyone ready to join them? Because we love God and we love others, but this whole movement to, to pursuit. What do you do when you need the next elder team? When we haven't pushed people through and encouraged people through to become mature in their faith and become pursuers of others. It's time to push through. As we close the sermon, I want to make a promise to you. And I don't want this to be nonchalant. I want you to know how much I mean this. Similar to what I said to the guys at men's ministry yesterday. We need to be there for one another. Otherwise, what's the point of claiming to be a church family if we're not going to be one? We need to be there for one another. So I want to commit as one of your pastors to be there for you. Why? Because the next time you need someone the most, I want you to look to the family. And as I commit that to you, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do that for you in the moment when you need someone. Maybe I'll be able to be a listener for you. Maybe an encourager to you. Maybe I can intercede and pray for you. And I hope that you are willing to make that commitment to other people as well. I hope that you are willing to say, Darren, I'll do it too. If anyone in Bridgeway needs help, if anyone in our family needs prayer or they need practical support, if someone needs someone, I'll step up. I'll be there. And if enough of us make that commitment, then as people in our church family who are nervous start to open up and say, I actually need a lot of help because my life is not going well. Are there people here to help? And what they don't face is ridicule and judgment and us talking about them at coffee break. Do you know what they do find in the church family? Prayer warriors. Meals brought to their house. Guys to have coffee with you and encourage you. Someone to come over to your house and help with a project. A check in the mail to help get you through to the next paycheck because they heard you weren't doing well. We create a culture in our family that we're there for one another. That way, when we start to invite other people from our community and our city into our family, they encounter something that is so radically different from the rest of the world. They encounter selfless, sacrificial generosity and love. I think that's what they experienced in the New Testament. I think that's what built their church family, made it so strong as they took bold steps in their faith as they had one another. I hope you're willing to make that commitment along with me. So I'm willing to make that commitment to you to the best of my ability.
We're gonna sing one more song before we go home. I just wanna pray and bless our family with a prayer, then let's sing. Heavenly Father, these are bold words that I've spoken. And my prayer to you in this moment is that you will give me the strength to see through the commitment that I've made. Father, I wanna thank you for how you humbled me, how you've taught me the value in just being there for someone this week. But Lord, as we as a family commit to being there for one another, give us the strength to see this through, for this not to just be, I don't know, for this not to just be strong words and bold talk that we speak in a sermon, for this to actually become the culture of our Bridgeway family. Help us to love one another the way that you loved us. And Father, I pray that the world would know that we are followers of you by our love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we wrap things up this morning, let the words that we sing be a prayer, be a motivational tool, be something to reflect on this week as we ponder what it looks like to be the church and to see the church grow and to show the church to the world. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church. We need your power.
leave this morning. Go from this place united in heart and thought, strong to serve the Lord of the church, ready to face and battle the foes of the Lord, ready to find and join the friends of the Lord, always vigilant, always faithful. And may the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and stay with you always.